Acts 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Then he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds, also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let's pray. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, your word stands forever. We ask that you would help us to see the triumph of Paul's apostolic ministry, that you would help us to see the power that he exercised in so many different arenas, and that you would help us to imitate it. Not the apostolic power, but the apostolic obedience, the unity, the confession, the magnifying and glorifying of the name of Jesus. Father, we're in a different venue today. We're not together except with each family. Lord, help us to focus on your word. Thank you that we do usually have the privilege of gathering. Help us to love and value that privilege even more than we already did. Give us the grace, Lord, to hear your word and to profit from it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this sermon is is the last one, essentially, where Paul 
is a free man engaging in his ministry with undisputed uh, power, undisputed ability to proclaim. And so, what that means, it's a climax. Here we see the full extent of Paul's apostolic powers. Before, in the next chapter, or actually at the end of this chapter, he's sidelined. He's silenced by the riot in Ephesus. We'll talk about that next week. But Paul was in Ephesus for three years. Three years, and from three years of ministry, Luke has selected these half-dozen incidents, six, six scenes that sum up three years of work. And the principle of his selection is clearly this. He wants to show us the power that was on Paul as a wise master builder to extend the kingdom of God, to bring the rule of Jesus to people and to places where formerly it had not been present. So if you think about trying to sum up the last three years of your life in a single page of narrative, what incidents would you pull out? Well, these are the ones that Luke pulled out. The first of these is a a story that's given fits to a lot of people and to a lot of commentators. What is going on with this story of the disciples of John who had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit and whom Paul seemingly baptizes? Well, there's a lot here, clearly. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that there is as much here as we often tend to think there is. Here's the the reformers were certain of this, that what didn't happen was that these 12 men had one valid baptism from John and a second valid baptism from Paul. That's not what happened. And so there are a variety of interpretations swirling around. Maybe they weren't baptized by John. Maybe they were baptized in a sect of followers of John the Baptist who had sort of wandered off the rails and become the first century equivalent of Mormonism. Maybe, 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 but why is Luke telling this story? If we ask that question, I think we'll be much better off at finding out what the point of the story is. Here's the reality. The point of the story is not to tell us about baptism. Luke is not trying to make a theological point about who's worthy of being baptized or who's worthy of being rebaptized. Now, in my mind, if we just change the punctuation a tiny bit, we can solve almost all of the difficulties with this story. Conventionally, as the text in front of you almost certainly shows, you've got a Bible that reads something like this. Paul said, John baptized, blah, 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 and that quote ends with the word Jesus. That they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And then Luke tells us, when they, the disciples of John, heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul gives them this little history of the movement of John the Baptist and then adds, well, or, and then, so it says, people came to John and were baptized and 
told to believe in Jesus. So you guys need to believe in Jesus too. When they heard that, then Luke comments, they were baptized. That's the conventional interpretation. But it solves so many problems if we just repunctuate it this way. Paul's history of John the Baptist's baptism continues for one more sentence, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, the they, then, would be these, not the twelve disciples of John to whom Paul is speaking, but he's talking about the past. Twenty years ago, in the ministry of John the Baptist, he would tell them to believe in Jesus, and then he would baptize them in Jesus' name. What's left unsaid, then, if we interpret it this way, which is fits perfectly with the Greek text. There's no real reason why the quote has to end after that first Jesus. It can end just as well after the second Jesus. And if we punctuate it this way, it helps us understand that Paul didn't baptize these people a second time. They were baptized by John. They were not well instructed. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit, even though John preached the Holy Spirit. They were stuck in this redemptive historical time warp, and Paul simply laid hands on them. Then, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Paul brings them out of their time warp into the fellowship of the main body of Christians. In other words, what's the point? It's not about baptism. The story is about Paul's power to bring the sideline into the main line. Paul's power to take separated Christians who are off by themselves over here and don't know what's going on in the broader church. Paul, as an apostle, embraces them and says, Here, my friends, is the fullness of the church. Here is the Spirit of God. Here is the main line. Come back to it. So, what is Luke telling us by telling us this story? He's telling us that Paul's ministry is the real deal. Paul is God's Pentecostal agent. Through his ministry, the Holy Spirit comes to the people of God. So, these were disciples. That's what Luke tells us. Paul found some disciples, but they were disciples of Jesus who had not received the Holy Spirit. So Paul, as an apostle, gives them the Holy Spirit. What is Luke saying? You can only get the Spirit through the apostles. We, insofar as we have the Holy Spirit, have Him because the apostles left Him to us, as it were. The apostles gave us the Spirit. The twelve disciples, why does Luke tell us there were twelve It's a reminder of the unity of the church. There are 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob. There are 12 apostles. Each one of those, two groups of 12, is a sign of the unity of the church. And in the same way, these 12 Ephesian disciples are another sign of the unity of the church as they're brought out of the sideline, out of this dead-end cul-de-sac into which they had somehow gotten, brought back into the mainstream to join the church in singing praise to Jesus by the power 
of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first point. Uh, if we just run back to that slide. Paul has the power to bring separated disciples into the mainstream. Paul in Ephesus is working in the power of the Spirit, the Pentecostal power, to take disciples and say, here's the Spirit. Here is how to follow Jesus with the power that the Christian life needs. The second thing we see is that Paul had the power to persuade. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Now, this was the first synagogue he went to where the response was, tell us more. Remember, he had to leave that synagogue back in chapter 18 because he was on a mission to get back to Jerusalem. But now he returns and he speaks there for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, anybody can reason. We can all give arguments. But it's a totally different thing to persuade than to just give an argument. Paul persuaded them by the quality of his arguments and also, of course, by the power of the Spirit who opened minds of the Jewish people in the Ephesian synagogue and showed them the truth of Paul's gospel. Notice, too, that Luke doesn't ever say that Paul proclaimed blind faith. He never said, believe because I said so. He never said, believe because it feels good, it sounds nice. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this were true? He always said, believe because this is true. Believe because I have eyewitness testimony. I am an eyewitness. I have biblical testimony. You trust the Bible. So believe that Jesus, whom I saw, fits with what's in the Bible. Uh, There's only one question we as Christians have to be able to answer according to the New Testament. That is the question of why we have hope within us. Where does that hope come from? Why are you hopeful? If someone asks you that, you need to have a response. Paul had a response. He was able to reason and persuade about the kingdom. Only an apostle could give the Holy Spirit and bring sideline Christians into the main body of the church. But every Christian should at some level be able to be like Paul and reason and persuade about the kingdom. If you don't know enough about the kingdom to reason about it, to persuade about it, you need to study and learn more. Paul as an apostle had an overwhelming amount of power to persuade people about the kingdom. But you and I have the same spirit as Paul had. And we too should be able to say, this is why I have hope. This is why I have confidence in the kingdom. The third thing, the third vignette Luke gives us is that after being kicked out of the synagogue, which happened in every synagogue, after he was kicked out, Paul went to the school of Tyrannus. And some texts, some manuscripts say he reasoned every day from the 5th hour to the 10th hour, or from 1 p.m., 11 a.m. to, yeah, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., something like that, or noon to 5 p.m. He taught right through nap time, siesta time, supposedly, according to the commentators, 
In the cities of Asia Minor at this period, there would have been more people asleep at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. Cities had a vibrant nightlife and a vibrant nap life. But Paul persevered powerfully in teaching. For two years, he taught every day, maybe for as much as five hours a day, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul, his ministry is powerful to keep going, to not give up, to not say, all right, that's another synagogue that I've been kicked out of. I think I'm done. I've had it with the rejection. Paul doesn't say that. He is powerful to keep teaching over and over and over, day by day. The next scenes uh, get a little more exciting, perhaps. God is doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So we're used to Paul's power to persuade and every human being has some measure of that power to talk to other people and say, you know, let me persuade you of this point. But Luke, even Luke, who has narrated a lot of extraordinary things thus far, has to call this in Ephesus extraordinary. This is not par for the course for Paul. If he's working in the shop, sewing tents, sweating, his sweat rags that he throws in the laundry pile at the end of the day are such that somebody can come along and grab one and take it to the hospital and use it to heal a sick person in the hospital. Where does this power come from? Why? Well, it comes from Jesus, obviously, but why does Luke have it in Ephesus? The answer is that this is the climax of Paul's ministry. This is where he is more apostolic than he has been anywhere else. He's about to go to Jerusalem. He's about to be imprisoned. He's, the book ends with him a prisoner. But in his last days as a free man, here in this Asia Minor city of Ephesus, God works through him in such an overwhelming way to say, yes, this is my apostle. Yes, the kingdom of darkness is being driven back. Demons run away from his sweat rags. Demons can't stand his handkerchief. God is bringing about the obedience of faith among all nations through the ministry of Paul. And one of the ways that he does it is through these talismans, something that has touched Paul, has so much power of the kingdom of God lying on its surface that it drives out demons and sickness wherever it goes. So, it got to the point, of course, anything this successful is going to spawn copycats. And Paul's ministry was no exception. The copycats, in this case, were seven traveling Jewish exorcists, all brothers who had gone into the same trade. Their dad was Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. Now, we don't know of any Jewish chief priest in Jerusalem by that name. Some have suggested, therefore, that he was a chief priest in Ephesus. 
and serving a pagan god, Artemis of the Ephesians, or one of the other pagan gods there in the city of Ephesus. We obviously don't know whether he was a chief priest of a pagan god, whether he was somehow a chief priest in Jerusalem, or a third suggestion, the word skiva in Latin means essentially liar, and the guy could have not been a chief priest at all. He might have been just calling himself that, rather like Mark Twain's king and duke in Huckleberry Finn. Remember, the duke says what? That he is the lost dauphin. And these uh, American audiences in Missouri believe him. Apparently, Twain lived there before it was the show-me state. Anyway, Skiva may have claimed to be a Jewish high priest, but not been anything of the kind, either at a pagan temple or at the Jewish temple. Regardless of who Skiva is, his seven sons run an exorcism business, and they realize that the power of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, is more powerful than whatever it was that they had been using up to this point. And so they try it on somebody in Ephesus. They exorcise this demon, or try to exorcise, of course, what happens is a reverse exorcism. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The power that Paul exercised was not available to just anybody. And so Luke tells us this fifth anecdote to make that clear. Yes, the power of Jesus conquers the forces of darkness. No question about it. But that doesn't mean that just anybody can pick up the name of Jesus and by saying it, saying, Jesus, 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 they can make Satan go, Oh no, i got to run away. He said the name Jesus. It's not the ability to say the name. It's the actual connection to Jesus. Paul had that connection. The seven sons of Sceva lacked that connection. So the powerful name of Jesus is not to be abused. If you try to take the name of Jesus and pin it to something and say, aha, now I put Jesus' name on this, now I have power against the forces of darkness. Sorry, that's absurd. The forces of darkness are going to beat up your two-bit plan just as much whether it has the name of Jesus on it or not, or maybe more, because it has the name of Jesus on it. As I was saying in Sunday school, we can do this with our politics. Well, Jesus would want this bill to pass. Therefore, the forces of darkness will have to give way. Jesus would want this candidate elected. Therefore, the forces of darkness can't possibly stand against Jesus. Well, yes, the forces of darkness can't stand against Jesus, but they can very much stand against you or me standing there saying, this is endorsed by Jesus. Maybe, maybe not. And if it's not, the forces of darkness know. You can't triumph over Satan by doing things that don't bother Satan. So, abusing the name of Jesus doesn't bother Satan. 
actually he likes that because it's a sin. It's something that he approves of. It's a violation of the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But the good consequence of this, of the reverse exorcism, where the exorcist is driven out instead of the demon, is that fear fell on them all. Seemingly, on the whole city of Ephesus. And the name of Jesus is magnified. Rather than the exorcist saying, name of Jesus, doesn't do squat. I don't know why we tried to use that technique. Instead, the city said, whoa, the name of Jesus is even more powerful than we thought because Jesus not only can drive out demons, Jesus can control who uses his power. Jesus manages his brand. Jesus sets the terms on which his identity, his power, can be leveraged. Brothers and sisters, that's still true today. Just because we add the name of Jesus to the end of a prayer doesn't mean that he has to do what we told him. He controls how his power is used. That's how powerful he is. I once heard sovereignty defined as the right to define the limits of one's own power. That's sovereignty. Well, our God has that. And he limited his power. He said, nope, I won't be a party to the seven sons of Sceva. And that caused the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified. One of the major ways in which it was magnified, Luke tells us, next verse, the name of Jesus was magnified and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Now, isn't this fascinating? The sixth kind of power that Paul manifested as an apostle was the power of voluntary obedience to Christ. There were a bunch of half-hearted Christians in Ephesus. And they had believed. That's what Luke tells us. Many who had believed. They had said, yes, I want to be a Christian. Yes, I want to follow Jesus. They had come and been baptized and joined the church. But after the whole Sceva incident, where the demon showed that the forces of darkness will prevail over anybody who's just throwing around the name of Jesus without an actual real relationship with Jesus, all these nominal Christians suddenly said, uh-oh, the forces of darkness are going to eat me for lunch unless I get right with God. And so they came confessing and telling their deeds. Suddenly, the church was full of Ephesians who had been there for weeks or months, but who all started coming up to Paul or coming up to Titus or coming up to one of the elders in the Ephesian church and saying, there's something I need to tell you. I've had some interesting confessions uh, from some of you. Not a whole lot. In fact, not as many as I expected. But two different men in the church have confessed to me in a moment of weakness that they chew tobacco. And I've been a little nonplussed. Well, that's not really a sin, my friend. 
you can abuse tobacco, but just using tobacco is not necessarily sinful. Anyway, these people were not confessing tobacco usage. It sounds like most of what they were confessing is, I've been following Jesus and practicing black magic. I've been trying to live as a sorcerer, a necromancer, but a Christian sorcerer, a Christian necromancer, and now I'm seeing that that doesn't work. If I'm planning to call on demons for their assistance, I can't call on Jesus for his assistance. I can't have it both ways. Either I serve heaven or I serve hell. I can't serve both. The reverse exorcism, where the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches failed to dislodge the demon, taught these Christians that they needed to take their faith more seriously, that they needed to recognize, oh, Jesus is not my pet on a chain. If I'm going to serve him, every bit of devil worship has to get out of my life. Now, I trust that none of you were actively involved in the occult and sorcery and spells before you came into the church. Maybe you were. I don't know. If you were, learn from this passage. Put that away. In fact, says Luke, burn it. They counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. By giving up their magic and their money, what did the Ephesians signal? They signaled that they were actually, finally, ready to submit to Christ. They had been baptized. They had come into the church. They had professed faith and obedience before the congregation. But now, when they saw the reverse exorcism, now they said, okay, 50,000 pieces of silver, take it as a loss, doesn't matter. I would far rather lose 50,000 pieces of silver than lose Jesus. Is that where you're at? If there is something in your life that is keeping you from obeying Christ, and it might be the paraphernalia of an occult past, Ouija boards and candles and pentagrams and tarot cards and all of those things, that's what it was for many in Ephesus. But Luke, of course, isn't just saying that practicing black sorcery is the only way to sin. That is a way to sin. And if you're doing it, repent. Brothers and sisters, there are so many other things where we can say, oh, I can't give that up. Yeah, it's causing me to sin, but it costs too much to think about getting rid of it. Well, the classic example here is internet pornography. I have this computer, I have this smartphone, and I couldn't possibly get rid of it because it would cost me too much to live without it. And so, I'll just keep on sinning in this way. But there are so many other ways. I have a sunk cost. I've invested a lot in this adulterous relationship. I've invested a lot in gathering this collection of stolen goods or stolen movies or stolen music 
or I've invested a lot in chiseling my sister out of the inheritance or getting my parents to turn against my siblings so that I can have their favor or whatever it is. If you've invested a lot in sin, Luke is saying Paul had power to expose that and Christians need to come and voluntarily obey Christ. We've seen it over and over and over. If money controls you, you're not a follower of Jesus. Luke has made that clear in so many ways and he makes it clear again. From Ananias and Sapphira back at the beginning of the book to now the Ephesians burning 50,000 silver pieces worth of books, magic books, the theme is the same. If money rules you, you're no follower of Christ. You're a follower of mammon. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing through Paul's ministry in Ephesus as the people of God voluntarily obeyed Jesus. Now what is Luke telling us? He's telling us we can be certain about the kingdom. Just look at what happened in Ephesus. Jesus really reigns. That's what motivated so many people to become believers and burn those magic books. Jesus really reigns. That's what enabled Paul to persist in ministry. Jesus really reigns. That's how the sidelined disciples of John could be given the Spirit through the laying on of Paul's hands and come into the mainstream. That is Paul's point. So, or Luke's point. What do we take away? Be certain about the reign of Jesus. The kingdom really is coming. Secondly, brothers and sisters, we have the Holy Spirit. That means we can rule money rather than letting money rule us. You and I don't have to be subject to the almighty dollar. We don't have to bow down and worship it. Oh no. We rather have the ability to say no to the dollar and yes to Jesus. So, burn it, get rid of it, don't bother about how much it costs. Ungodly music, ungodly movies, ungodly books, ungodly relationships. These things have to go. And if you say, well, it cost me $200,000. Well, all the more reason for it to go. The final point, the kingdom came in Ephesus through Paul's hard work and God's blessing. And that's how the kingdom is coming everywhere that it comes, including right here in Gillette. The climax of Paul's ministry does not mean that Paul is going to go on to an even more glorious place. Rather, as we'll see, he's headed down the backside now. He's going downhill into the valley of the shadow of death. Imprisonment, suffering, beating, shipwreck. That doesn't mean that his power as an apostle is less, or that his ability to build the kingdom is less. But he will no longer be a free man. And the same could be true of us. 
right now is, in worldly terms, the best time of your life. Any of us could lose our health today. Car wrecks, sliding on the ice, uh, sudden health problems, etc., etc. But the kingdom of God is still coming. The forces of darkness are being driven back here with every person who comes to know Jesus. Every person who starts to obey Jesus. That is a victory against the forces of darkness. And that happens as we disciple each other, as we evangelize our neighbors, as we continue to work for the spread of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your kingdom came in Ephesus. We thank you for these half dozen ways in which Paul manifested your power, the power of the name of Jesus. We thank you for this triumph of his apostolic ministry. And we thank you that his ministry continues today, long after his death, through his example in Acts, and his writings, and his 13 epistles. Lord, we ask that you would help us to imitate your apostle. Give us that same power according to our place and calling. Help us to give up, like the Ephesians, anything and everything that's keeping us from obedience to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are King of Kings, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Help us not to simply invoke his name to take it on our lips, but to have that true relational connection with him by faith. We pray in his name. Amen.